You push through it because you know what the goal is. All right. And what what helped me and what I kept going back to were the people I served in, in combat with, the people who um, never made it home. And I kept thinking to myself, you know, they're gone, I'm here. Uh, our country is worth this fight. It's worth me getting some mud on my face. And I know who I am. I'm so confident in who I am deep down that I can take this. That's the voice of Amy McGrath, the Marine Corps fighter pilot who went on to challenge one of the most powerful figures in American politics, Mitch McConnell, in the last election. Although she lost that race, her courage to step into the arena to take on that kind of fight inspired millions. I'm Dr. Max Cloud, Senior Director of Leadership Development at New Politics, a bipartisan organization dedicated to revitalizing American democracy by recruiting, supporting, and electing servant leaders who put community and country over self. On every episode of this podcast, I sit down with a servant leader, a military veteran or an alum of a civilian service program like AmeriCorps or Peace Corps, who has chosen to serve again through politics. Together, we explore the challenges of leading with courage, integrity, and empathy in the toxic space of American politics today. Before we hear more from Amy McGrath, I want to let you all know about some exciting programs that might be of interest to listeners of this podcast. The New Politics Leadership Academy is a nonpartisan nonprofit that offers leadership development programs for servant leaders with an interest in politics, and applications are currently open for two powerful programs run by the Academy. First, Answering the Call is a five-session small group program for military vets or alumni of civilian service programs who are wondering if they feel called to serve again through politics. The program is led by skilled and trained facilitators, and this spring the Academy is running 20 cohorts of this popular and transformational experience. There's no cost to participate and more than 1,300 individuals have already gone through the program. The deadline to apply is Monday, March 22nd. Also, applications are open for a second program called Staffing School, and this program is open to anyone who is interested in becoming a staff person on a political campaign. If you'd like to learn how to become a campaign manager, finance director, communications director, or field director for a political campaign, this program is for you. The training will occur virtually on April 27th and April 30th. Again, there's no cost to participate, but space is limited. To learn more about both of these programs and to apply, visit newpoliticsacademy.org. The application deadline for both programs, again, is March 22nd, so please help us spread the word, and if you or anyone you know is interested in either of these programs, please apply soon. And with that, we can now turn our attention back to our interview with Amy McGrath. As a young girl growing up in Kentucky, Amy dreamed of becoming a fighter pilot. When she learned it was illegal for women to fly fighter jets, she became a 12-year-old advocate, writing letters to her politicians requesting that they change the law. One of those politicians was her senator, Mitch McConnell, who never wrote her back. Amy went on to attend the Naval Academy and arrived right at the time when the law she had once advocated against was overturned. She was among the first women to train as a fighter pilot and in 2002 became the first woman in the Marine Corps to complete a combat mission in an F-A-18. 
In the years ahead, she went on to fly 89 combat missions in a fight against the Taliban in Afghanistan and Al-Qaeda in Iraq. Alarmed by the election of Donald Trump in 2016, Amy felt called to serve her country again through politics. She jumped into the race for Kentucky's 6th Congressional District, launching her campaign with an ad that quickly went viral. While she ultimately lost to Republican incumbent Andy Barr in 2018, she came far closer to winning than many people thought possible. And just months after that, she stepped back into the arena to take on one of the most powerful figures in American politics, six-term incumbent and Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell. In this conversation, Amy talks about the deep sense of purpose that has guided her life since childhood and the lessons she learned from her service as a Marine Corps fighter pilot. She discusses how she chose to run for office twice and what she thought about the January 6th insurrection. And also, since we're airing this podcast during Women's History Month, she talks about her experiences as a female fighter pilot and a female political candidate and shares her advice for other women who are contemplating stepping into the arena. Amy is a remarkable servant leader, and I'm honored to welcome her to our show. Amy McGrath, thank you so much for making time to be with us here today. Great to be with you. So here is where I always like to start. What's your earliest memory of learning the value of service? Well, I think it was two memories that come to mind were one from my mother and one from my father, um, because they were both public servants in a way. Um, my mother was a medical doctor and that was very much a service. You know, she worked in many different capacities at children's hospital and then at the VA and, uh, later in her own private practice, but, um, doing things and, and helping people. That was like her life. And, and then my father um, displayed service to me because he was a, a high school teacher, which, you know, it's not, it's a family that doesn't strive to make millions of dollars, but they strive to help the community. And that was his passion. And that was sort of instilled in me from the very beginning. So you grew up with a doctor and an educator, and it was just yeah. the water you swim in. So a doctor and an educator, where did the love of flying come from? I mean, you said <laughs> you just knew you were going to be a, want to be a fighter pilot. Where did it come from? I don't know. Um, I, I remember when I was very young watching a documentary. Actually, I was probably preteen. Um, I had a project that was a history project, and I just chose to do something about World War II, and my father had found this documentary and on on um, uh, aviation, military aviation. So I watched this thing, and I was supposed to be watching for like the World War II era, you know, to take notes and really learn something so I could impress my my teacher. And I must have been in seventh grade or something. And um, but what I I kept being drawn to was the modern day carrier aviation and the this one gentleman, a naval aviator got on and he said, you know, there, there are pilots and then there are naval aviators. And if you, anybody can be a pilot, but to land on an aircraft carrier, you're, you're the best of the best. And then, and, and, and at that moment I said, well, I want to be that. I want to do that. You just knew, That huh? is really cool. And I want to be the best of the best. And if that was when I was like sold from that one moment on naval aviation, and uh and and you know fighter jets and carrier fighter jets 
I have to say, my dad was a pilot, did the Air Force, flew for Pan Am for 25 years and had the same, just knew he, knew he wanted to fly. And it's always been a like, where does and I had never from? flown. I had never right. been in. I just I remember climbing up on the top of my house, taking a ladder out when I was a teenager and just sitting there on the top of the house, just watching the planes. So we we lived near a, a major airport. And so just watching the planes go by. And then my father, around my 15th or 16th birthday, um, for my birthday, he paid a uh, flight instructor to take me up in a Cessna uh, 152. He said, you know, you just paid this guy. Here's just just take her up and fly around for for uh, for 30 minutes. And what so do you remember? Guy, from there? What was that like? I, I was amazed. I, it was awesome. I got 30 minutes flying around my my hometown. I had never been in a, you know, an aircraft before. Um, I got got out and I, I said, this is this is awesome. This is what I want to do. Amazing. Yeah. So you've shared the story many times about how you wrote letters to your congressman. You knew you wanted to be a fighter pilot and it wasn't legal at the time. And I have to ask, did your, do you feel like your parents did anything to encourage you to just follow your dreams with such courage and conviction? Well, yeah, absolutely. I think my, my parents, my mother was and still is a sort of a very scientific person. She, she is, you know, she looks at problems and says, okay, where's the barrier? How do we get around the barrier? And I remember going to my mom, you know, and saying, mom, you know, there's no women doing this. There's this, this thing called a federal law that's prohibiting women from doing this. What, what's a law? Like, let's just change the law, mom. How do we change it? And my mother sort of sitting me down and giving me my first sort of civics lesson on government. Well, you know, you, you can't change the law, but you can advocate for change. Um, your member of Congress changes the law with the president. And so let's write our member, your member of Congress. And let's write all of the members that have some influence in this area. And that happened to be the House and Senate Armed Services Committees. So I went to the library. This is in the days before internet. Before I went the to the library, yep. took out a book, found every single address for um, all of the House and Senate Armed Services Committee members, wrote them all typewritten with a typewriter letter saying who I was and what I wanted to do and could they please change the law and including my own congressman and my senators my father his his part in all of this was to sort of watch but he also played a part in that he was the one that took me to the library and helped me find the addresses mm -hmm. I mean he was the english teacher Mm -hmm. So, you know, he uh, see how it works. libraries mm -hmm. and he's like, well, here's where we're going to find the addresses. And, and he was the one that went out and bought the envelopes and bought the stamps. And so, you know, we, that's what I did. I became an advocate. And then I also wrote, um, and I still have these letters today that were published in the local newspapers. You know, this was during the Persian Gulf war, mm. uh, when there was a lot of talk of women in combat at that time in the early 1990s. And I, I wrote letters up, you know, letters to the editor in the, the Kentucky Post and the Kentucky Inquirer saying, you know, I can do this. Uh, Did you have peers who were supporting you in this? Did you have friends who were like, go, Amy, make this happen? Or I did. I mean, I yeah. think my my longtime friend who um, met me in seventh grade and, and has since become my one of my best friends, I think initially she was sort of like, well, this is pretty odd <laughs> for this girl um, to, to do this. But I think uh, eventually, especially in high school, my peers grew to really respect it 
And um, they were very encouraging, including the um, faculty. I went to an all girls um, Catholic high school in Northern Kentucky at Notre Dame Academy. And the faculty there were just amazing. The, the, um, the nuns who, who taught me, um, they never laughed at what I wanted to do. They were behind it. And, um, and so that was, that was important. What do you think you got from, from going to an all girls school, that kind of education? Discipline. I went to an all girls Catholic high school and um, I think, you know, there's, there's pluses and minuses obviously to it. I think that the pluses were that, you know, I wasn't, I didn't feel this a distraction of, of having boys or having to deal with the social aspects of being a teenager as much during the work day. You know, you had the weekends and you had the extracurricular activities and you had, you know, all that stuff. The boys school was across the street, you know, so we were sort of linked that way, but, but during the work day, it was, it was work. And um, we all wore uniforms, which sort of made us all equal in a sense that, you know, fashion, which was never really my thing to begin with, um, just wasn't super important. And that, I think that was really good for me at that age, because I could really focus on academics. And, and, um, and so, you know, I, I really enjoyed those years. Great. And so you went to the Naval Academy. Was it an easy choice? Was there any doubt? Like how was, how did that decision? No go doubt. No, no doubt. doubt. I, I wanted to go to the Naval Academy since, um, since about 12 years old, since I wanted to fly fighter jets and be a Naval aviator. And I remember reading about take, reading every single book I could about Naval aviation, memorizing all the aircraft carriers and reading, you know, about how do I become this naval aviator and when i focused on it i realized that i felt at the time the best way to do that was the u.s naval academy that was sort of the most elite and so that became my goal all right step one i'm going to get myself into this institution and um so that's what i worked on you know seventh grade on and um and there was no doubt that's what i wanted all right. So you just knew. This is definitely a theme. You just knew what you were supposed to do. Um, give us some sense of what it's like to be a woman training to be a fighter pilot in the time you were doing it. I mean, how many other women were with you in that program? Well, what was it I like? First, I didn't have the eyes to be a front seater initially. I had to be a back seater. Um, and, and it wasn't until later in my career when I could have eye surgery and become go in the front seat. So my first part of flight school, which was being a naval flight officer, um, in the F-18, it's called a weapon systems officer. And we were, you know, the, the women that went through with me, we were very new. Um, I remember going to the F-18 RAG after flight school and RAG is the um, replacement air squadron. That's the first squadron that you go to to learn the F-18, okay, after flight school, which is mostly training aircraft, all training aircraft. And one of the older um, pilots said, oh, you're, you're one of the experimental group, you so know, <laughs> and okay. I was like, experimental, what do you mean? You know, I mean, it was so new. They had just opened up these jobs to women in, in, um, in the mid nineties. And I, I was going through flight school, you know, in 1998. So it was, there were just so few of us. And I think we had a lot on our, our we had a bit of a chip on our shoulders, most of the women that went through, but we also, um, we knew that all eyes were on us. Um, and I sort of became used to 
being in the spotlight a little bit, not as, you know, not publicly, right, right. Max, but knowing that people were watching, knowing that I had to be excellent um, because I was a minority, because I was one of the first. And I sort of just got used to that. Just and that helped me later on, you know, running sure. campaigns because you're in it. Was there anything that helped you stay resilient and motivated through that? Like, how'd you do it? I think it's laser focus on what is your goal. Mm. I could take lots of stuff. I mean, I could take uh, harassment. I could take um, 5 a.m. runs. I could take, you know, I mean, it, chemistry at the Naval Academy, physics, you going can make through it through electrical engineering, which was not exactly my, my favorite course. You can take a lot if you you just, you know what you want and you know how to get there. Yeah. And you just, that that's what it was. It was just laser focus. Well, such a strong theme in your life. Um, so in 2002, you're deployed to Afghanistan and that was the tour of duty where you became the first woman to fly a combat mission uh, in an FA-18. And I assume there was a moment when you got that mission assignment like what was it like were you aware of the significance what you know was there a moment where you suddenly realized you were part of this so it was um fairly quickly after 2000 or the september 11th and we were deployed in early 2002 to an air base in the former soviet republic uh of kyrgyzstan called manas and it was an old tupolev two bomber base and and um you know, I, I didn't. In fact, I was so focused on um, the mission and just doing well. I was still a junior air crew, so I really didn't want to mess it up. Okay. Um, there's another term for that in the Marine Corps and in the Naval Aviation, but I really didn't want to mess it up. And so I was very focused. And I remember after the first um, it may have been even after the second mission, but I think it was after the first mission, another air crew came up to me and said, you know, I think you you might be the first woman to fly an F-18 on a combat mission in, in the Marine Corps. And, and I said, oh, really? That's nice. You know, <laughs> I kind of went on because at that time I was worried about, you know, well, what's on the flight schedule next? What's my, you know, what's going on? I mean, as a, as a especially as a junior air crew, you have just a lot of things to do. You don't just fly, you have lots of other jobs. So, you know, I was very focused at the time. Yeah. Yeah. So you ended up flying 89 combat missions in the fight against Al Qaeda and Taliban. What do you think you learned about leadership from that? How does that form you? I think that um, the best leaders were the ones who uh, were excellent, competent. You trusted them. It's 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 different flying than it is maybe so much on the ground. Um, leadership and flying is you really do know because the sort of ranks go away when you're when you're in the cockpit. That's sort of something that is inherent to military aviation. And you really do know who is competent and who is not. And um, so I that was one of the biggest lessons I learned is you know know your stuff. People will follow you if you're excellent. And then um, integrity, 
you know, this idea of being honest with people, being honest with yourself. Um, when you have screwed up, admitting it uh, and moving on. And I felt like the best leaders were the ones that could do that um, and, and were excellent at the same time. And that's, that's what I learned. And, you know, um, it's combat is, it's such a, it's such a team effort. You really want to make sure that you are there for the guys on guys, people, Marines, whoever on the ground. Mm -hmm. Um, and so it's a lot of work. Yeah. Yeah. Powerful. So I know you've talked many times about how 2016 was uh, kind of a, a moment of awakening for you. It was, uh, can you say a little bit more about how that election impacted you? Well, I think it was not just the results of the election, but the entire election season. And I sort of watched, like I was teaching at the U.S. Naval Academy. I was teaching one of the courses I was teaching was U.S. government. I taught some national security type courses, but I was teaching U.S. government at the time. And um, I prided myself on being able to present both sides. I prided myself and, and I had, you know, students would come to me at the end of each semester and say, hey, ma'am, I just got to know. Usually after exams, they would they would ask me this. Um, ma'am, I just have to know, are, are you a Republican or a Democrat? I can't tell. And that always made me feel great because I'm like, awesome. I'm, I'm presenting both sides um, in an objective way when it came to the politics part of, of this um, discussion for the semesters. And I realized that during that cycle, that 2016, I could not present one side anymore with integrity because there were so many lies and the person in the who then became the president, right? Trump um, was so against his character was so unlike everything I had been taught at the Naval Academy and everything that I had been taught about what a leader should be. Humble, excellent, a man of integrity, a man of service. You know, he, he was not these things, at least what he portrayed. I didn't, I don't know him personally, right? But what he portrayed on the campaign trail, and I would argue later as president, was so against those traits that I was taught. And it, it, um, it really took me back because I didn't think that our country would elect somebody with such, you know, we elect people that, that make mistakes, um, certainly in their personal lives and all kinds of other stuff. But somebody that was so against what I had learned, what a real leader should be. Um, and so it, it, it changed me. And it also made me, on the other hand, think, gosh, that guy can do it. I can do it. You know, because I never thought about running for, yeah. for public right. office. Like, I, I just, you know, I was in the military. I didn't think I was really qualified to be a member of Congress. But then I looked at him and I said, wait a second. He's totally not qualified. So let's, you know, I can do this. And if we continue to go down this road of having leaders that that don't have integrity and the character types of character traits that I was taught were so important, I was very concerned for the future of our country. 
And, and it, it made me kind of like watching that documentary at the age of 12. It was, I, I knew exactly what I had to do. So can you say a little more about the process of deciding to run against Andy Barr in, in Kentucky sixth? Let us into that process. Yeah, I think um, it, it was a, uh, it wasn't overnight. I mean, I, I knew that, that the election of 2016 had changed me, but I also had no idea how to, to run. Like I had no clue. And I was connected. I had um, at the Naval Academy, we had former members of Congress that would come in every semester and give a lecture uh, that we could sign up for. And of course, I always signed up for it because it was a free day for me as an instructor. And one of those former members of Congress was a man by the name of, of uh, Ben Chandler. And he was a former congressman from Kentucky. And I remember him and we, we hit it off because we talked about, you know, bourbon and UK basketball. And, and at, this was two years prior. And I never thought I'd ever do. But he gave me his card afterwards, like, you know, most, most good uh, politicians do. And um, said, if I can ever do anything, you know, let me know. Well, I put that away in my desk. And, and after the election, um, I remember the day after the 2016 election, I am in my desk at Annapolis, Maryland, at the U.S. Naval Academy in uniform after having just taught my class. And we were still sort of in shell shock, everybody, as to what happened and where do we go from here. And I remember pulling out my desk drawer and rifling through my desk drawer, trying to find his contact information. I pulled it out. I wrote him a, an email and I had like tears down my face, writing him an email saying, I don't know where our country is going. What, where's, where's my home going? How's Kentucky? You know, if I, if I came home, could I make a difference? I want to come home. I miss my parents. I'm almost to the end of my 20 years. Um, it's a place that I love. But is this something I could do? And he wrote me back almost immediately and said, yeah, I think you could make a difference. And let me, let me see if I can help you. And so he connected me to various individuals. And that's how I got started. And, but it wasn't easy. Yeah. And, you know, part of what our organization is about is uh, trying to get more servant leaders like yourself, military veterans or alum of national service programs into politics. So what advice do you have for folks who are you in that moment, just kind of looking at the headlines and saying, I think I, 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 I might need to get in there right now. What's your advice? For I would people? say, um, Definitely take all the help you can get. So organizations like New Politics or an organization that helps veterans, and there are a number of them out there um, that do, they provide various things. They're not the only you know, path, but, but take advantage of them. Uh, I didn't really have any organization helping me very much. I mean, you know, um, but, uh, I would definitely encourage that. And I would, I would also say, um, man, you, you're ready. You know, anybody that's served this country, anybody that's signed the dotted line um, to Uncle Sam, you know, um, don't ever think that you're not qualified. You are. And you 
just need to, to get to the place where you can make a difference and you will make those connections and talk to those of us that have done it and, um, and go do it because we need you. Great. Cause I, we do have a lot of folks who kind of look in the mirror and say, who am I to do this? But it's some powerful mm -hmm. experience uh, to have served the country. Um, so you run this race in 2016 and you lose uh, that congressional seat. And, and then you face this moment uh, and you're, you're a mom of three young kids. You had just been through a brutal congressional campaign. And here's this question of, are you going to step up and take on one of the most powerful people in American mm -hmm. politics? How'd you make that decision? What was that like for you? Well, some of it was, if not me, then who? I had, yes, I had lost the congressional campaign, but I had also done very well. I came out of nowhere. We raised more money than anybody had ever raised for a congressional seat in Kentucky. We um, almost defeated an incumbent, which a lot of people, I mean, we came very, very close, which a lot of people felt like was just impossible. Um, I had name recognition, which is so important in, in, in politics. Um, maybe not so much statewide, but I had a lot of it already. Um, so I had, I, I had some experience now as a candidate. I knew how to build an operation. Building a, a campaign is like building a small business. So I had done it. I'd made mistakes along the way. And I, I, you know, I knew how to do this now. I had enormous amounts of connections with people that, that, you know, were money people and comms people and digital people. And so, you know, it, and then there was this, the goal itself, right? I mean, to be able to take on somebody who, in my opinion, um, was really hurting our democracy. Probably the person who is maybe hurting it the most um, in terms of not allowing um, our government to function. And uh, and so to be able to, to do that, even though I knew it was going to be a really tough slog um, with maybe not the best percentage that I could win, but I wanted to be in a position where if the winds blew the right way, we could change the course of American history for the better. And how, I, I mean, gosh, who wouldn't take that opportunity? You know, I mean, I, 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 of, I, I, mean, I just feel like you, right. I, I couldn't live with myself if yeah. If I hadn't yeah. done it and and there was a real chance that I could make a difference. Um, so. Yeah. And I have to ask, you're a, a, a mother of three kids. How do you manage that while running a senatorial campaign and raising $90 million and well, taking that, on this? Uh, that right there is the interest. question I still cannot answer. <laughs> um, I think. I think you just do it. You know, moms are, we're like, we just like get stuff done. And you do. Um, I think that, you know, I had had experience in my military career with juggling a lot of things, including motherhood um, already. And so when I had compared running a campaign with what I had already done in the military with while having children at the same time, um, they really were comparable. That really wasn't harder. You know, I mean, think about if those of you who, who have been in the military, think about, you know, TAD or, or temporary de 
um, detachments, um, taking yourself away from your family deployment. You know, I had one um, journalist ask me at one point, like, how are you doing this with three small kids? And, you know, um, my response was, well, if I'd stayed in the military, I could be deployed. So this is like way easier as I was doing campaign Amazing. events with an Amazing. infant on okay. my on my hip, you know. How do you think you, your military experiences influenced your approach to campaigning? I think that it, it influenced it because the, the people that I respected the most in the military were the ones that would stand up, look you in the eye and had a presence. And I felt like we needed that. That was the kind of person I wanted to vote for. You know, you ever go to the, the, the ballot, you ever go to the polls and, you, and you're kind of like, gosh, I, I'm just voting for the person I like the, you know, I, I sort of. The yeah. lesser of evils. Like none of these yeah. people are super yeah. inspiring, but I'm just kind of like, I have to vote for somebody. I wanted to be the candidate that like people wanted to go to the polls that believed in, who may not, you know, who may have made mistakes and isn't perfect and um, sometimes says the wrong thing, but you know what? She's got integrity and she's got character and she stands up and can command a room um, or a park or wherever, you know, and that presence I got in the United States military. I mean, that that's just a fact. You learned how to show up that way. Absolutely. Show up, look yeah. people in the eye, tell them the truth. People, you know, my my notion of leadership is somebody who doesn't blow smoke, you know, at you, but who tells you the truth, the good, the bad, the ugly, and has a vision for how we get from point A to point B. And I felt like that's what people needed. Um, and that's what I could provide. And I got that from the military because those were the commanding officers that I had, the leaders I had. They, they were the ones who were honest with me. They were the ones who had a vision. They were the ones who were competent um, and had a presence. And, uh, and that's what I wanted to be. So I have to ask, do you feel like you kind of showed up at the starting line of the race, kind of formed in that sense? Or do you feel like the, the campaign trail, you grew into that in some deeper ways? Right? No, I think I was already was formed. Like? I knew how I wanted to be. And I didn't want to, I didn't, and Max, I didn't really want to change, you know, on the camp. And I don't think I did. I mean, there, there are, you, you may go through some media training and they might tweak how, you know, how you say certain things and you might learn certain ways of, you know, and I did learn a lot on the campaign trail. Um, I would have people, you know, explain to me nuanced differences about how to talk about certain issues and things like that, that I wasn't aware of before. You know, I had to come up with, with issue stances that I had never even thought about before. I remember a, a couple of weeks into my First campaign, I did a, a town hall in Madison County, and a guy I, I would always ask for questions, just throw them at me. Harder one, harder the better. Let's talk. And one guy said, "What's your stance on marijuana?" And I said, "I, I don't know. I didn't deal with marijuana so much in the United States Marine Corps. Tell me what your stance is. Like, why is this an issue? I just didn't know." And I listened to his stance. And then at the end, I said, okay, give me a month. 
I'm going to talk to lots of different people um, and I'm going to get an issue statement out there um, because this is new to me. And I just want to be honest with everybody here in this town hall that, you know, that's the kind of leader I'm going to be. I, I don't know an answer and I'm not going to tell you right now, but I will promise you in a month I will have a, a statement for you. And I had a woman come up to me after that and say she'd never, ever heard a politician say they didn't know and that that was so refreshing. And but that's just who I am. And that, you know, I learned that mm -hmm. in the military. You don't you know, you just be honest with people. And we have a lot of folks in our community who one of the reasons they're hesitant to get into politics is because they're like, I don't have all the answers to everything right now. Um, what advice would you have for those folks who that's their I, their I think that simple phrase is very refreshing to most voters. They are so tired of somebody that that, you know, does have all the answers because nobody does. The nobody ability does. to listen, the ability to um, to be sort of have a common sense reasonable approach. That's that's kind of who I am. And that's, you know, the brand that I wanted to portray in my campaigns. And I think I did, you know, I mean, you, you, the, the sort of just like in combat, the enemy has a say, right? I mean, they're going to want to, to poke at you and say, well, you said this and, you know, ah, they take you out of context and you're going to have you know, $50 million of attack ads that take that one phrase out that, you know, you said, and you wish you wouldn't have said it that way, but it's totally out of context and they're going to, you know, play that over and over again. But you, you just have to stay true to who you are and, and hope that people see through that stuff. Mm -hmm. So I have heard you say it takes more courage. It took more courage to run a political campaign than to get into a, you know, multi-million dollar fighter jet and fly into combat. Can you say a little more about that? It did for me. It did for me. Um, you can't speak with every, uh, to everybody. Because when you run a political campaign, particularly ones that I ran for the seats that I ran for in the political climate that we live in, you're putting your reputation out there. You are, you are going from, in my case, an institution that is widely respected, where what you did in that institution in the military is widely respected, your combat time, et cetera. And you're going into a political environment where the, the, the moment you throw your hat in the ring, um, you know, 50% of the people don't like you. And the other 50% may like you, but they are still skeptical because politicians or people that run for office are looked at as well, what's in it for them like they're just looked at it's just it's the nature of our politics today it's so so um nasty toxic, toxic. yeah and so um I knew that if I was going to do this that you know my reputation my name what people thought of me would be forever changed. And that that's um, that takes a lot of courage to do. That's intense. Because you're that's you intense. know, you just know you're gonna have $50 million in my case, or whatever, five million or six million in the congressional of 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 ads spent, attack ads spent to smear your name. I mean, my first run, my opponent did one positive ad for himself. And there were like 50. 
that were anti-me. Yeah. And a lot of them yeah. were lies. You know, and you just, yeah. you're, that's hard. I mean, you walk into the supermarket and you, you just, people look at you and you can tell. Some people love you and some people are just think you're the worst person ever. And that's just hard. How do you stay resilient through that? It, that's another thing that people say all the time of just, I don't know if I can handle that. And and you had $60 million spent uh, against you. So how do you wake up and just push through it every day? You push through it because you know what the goal is. All right. And what, what helped me and what I kept going back to were the people I served in, in combat with, the people who um, never made it home. And I kept thinking to myself, you know, they're gone, I'm here. Uh, our country is worth this fight. It's worth me getting some mud on my face. And I know who I am. I am so confident in who I am deep down that I can take this. Even if, you know, Fox News or CNN or whoever says something, right. you know, yep. the Twitter yep. sphere or the Facebook, whatever, whatever, you know who you are. You know what you're trying to accomplish. And you just keep keep that in mind. And that that builds yeah. the res resilience you need. Just that rock solid connection to purpose and, and, and your why. And that gets you through. Um, another reason that people hesitate to get into politics is because they're worried they'll lose, you know? And so you've had that experience. My first question is, what do you think your campaign did? What? Like you didn't get the, you, you know, you, you didn't win mm -hmm. the seat, but how do you think it impacted? Well, I, I do think they, they both impacted, both the campaigns impacted. I think one, the, the, the first campaign, I think gave a lot of people hope. I mean, I had a lot of people in Kentucky come up to me and say, you know, I, I never cared about politics and, or, or, and you made me care. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm 50 years old and I've never voted and I'm voting for you. Or people come up to me and say, you know, I, I, I just didn't believe in, in Kentucky and in the politics here anymore. And until you made me, made me think that this is winnable, this is doable, we can do this, this is important. Um, made me believe in our democracy again. I mean, that, that is awesome. Um, from the, the numbers, I mean, we almost won and that was really good. I mean, we moved the district 22 points, which I think was one of the, the best movements of the whole country that year. In the Senate race, you know, we, we ran as good uh, or better than most Senate candidates in the country. We had a number of, of um, we just couldn't get over the top of the ticket problems. And, and I think that that's just a function of how divided we are as a country, that people go into their camps. And, but I do think we made a difference. And, and I'm, I'm really proud of that because uh, what you don't want is a population or a group of our fellow Americans who just don't vote and don't believe that their vote matters and that we can change. And the other thing you do is no matter whether people vote for you, you, you start the conversation. You start a conversation. We're having, we're having conversations about things now that had I not gotten in, we may not have had. 
And, mm-hmm. um, and that's also important. You know, I mean, was Abraham Lincoln lost like nine times or something like that? I'm not trying to yes. compare myself uh-huh. to that. It's certainly not, but, but I mean, you know, it's, it's a part of, if you're afraid of losing, then don't get in. You know, I mean, it's like, well, those of us who are athletes, I mean, you don't, you don't go and be a, a professional NBA star or, or play soccer in college or football or anything because you're afraid to lose. You know, you're, you're, a, you're a competitor. You're going to get out there. And that's, that's what, mm-hmm. that's what this is. Mm-hmm. Powerful. So I have to ask, and I know we're, we're getting up on our time here, but January 6th, we all saw the insurrection at the Capitol and we're here at New Politics, well aware that there were veterans on both sides, you know, veterans in Congress like Jason Crow and Peter Mayer, Mikey Sherrill, who have been really um, strong stands against it. And then we also know that there were veterans in the in the mob. And how do you what do you think is going on? How can it be that individuals who took that same oath that you took were kind of storming the Capitol like that? Well, I think it's very concerning. Um, Obviously, there was up to 20% of those arrested in the Capitol insurrection, which was more than a mob, in my opinion, um, were veterans. Uh, The vast majority of them were post 9-11 veterans. Uh, and I look at this as this is this is my house. This is our house. You know, I'm not the greatest generation. I'm not the generation of Vietnam. I'm the post 9-11 generation. And so to see the vast majority of these um, insurrectionists who were veterans um, in such a high number of post 9-11 was very concerning. They were officers and enlisted men and women, and they were from all of the services. So what that shows me is that we have a real problem and uh, we need to clean it up. And um, I think that we do that by doing things like in the military, um, training on, um, on you know, the digital space. A lot of people are radicalized with disinformation, not only misinformation, right. but disinformation. And that can, we can mitigate that. We can't stop it. You know, um, it's like uh, Paul Rykoff says, uh, who is a, a, an infantry officer, a former infantry officer, and um, had this amazing line where he said, you know, it's like body armor. You know, body armor doesn't, doesn't we can't stop the bullets from coming, but we can, we can help ourselves protect ourselves. And so like we did training with cyber awareness to make sure that we weren't, you know, um, making our networks vulnerable. Uh, we need to, to have some resiliency within our force on, on some of this disinformation that radicalizes people because I think it's really real. Uh, we have to learn how to talk about this stuff. It cannot be politicized, and which is why the administration of, of President Trump was so bad because he politicized the military so much. Um, people have to, leaders have to be able to talk about the fact that you cannot wear the uniform and still advocate for hate and advocate for overthrow of your own government and advocate for um, hurting your fellow citizens or taking their rights away. I think that's really important. Um, So there's a number of things we have to do. I think uh, Secretary of Defense Austin uh, is stand down is a good one. And 
I'm the kind of person that want to wants to fix things. I think there's a problem, and I think we need to we need to tackle it. Thank you, thank you. So one more question. We're going to air this, uh, you know, we're having this conversation in February, but it will air in March uh, as part of Women's, uh, Women's History Month. Is there something you think that you hope that we as a nation are reflecting on or discussing in Women's History Month in 2021? Well, I mean, I think we I've talked about this a lot before, but I think we still need to continue the conversation. We need more women in leadership roles in politics. 20%, 25%, it's just not enough. It's not enough. The state legislatures, you know, it's around 25%. US Congress, it's around 25%. And the studies show that the reason, you know, men and women win and lose in politics at the same rate. So the reason we have only 25% women in, in places like Congress is because we don't run at the same rate as men. And I, I think that we really need to, um, to keep to talking about that. Uh, and, and, and so I, you know, I'm going to continue to do that um, in my way uh, and in supporting um, women in particular, because I just think it's so important you know, we need to have a voice and uh, it's been 100 years, over 100 years now. So since women got the right to vote. So, um, you know, we, we need to we need to do better. Awesome. Awesome. Well, Amy McGrath, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for making time to be with us. Thank you for all the ways you have served the country. And it's just a, it's an honor to spend some time. With you, you bet. It's great to be with you. And thanks for all that you do in new politics to help people get started. This is so important. Thank you, Max. This has been the New Politics Podcast. I'm your host, Max Clow. Thanks for listening, and I hope you join us for our next episode when we meet another servant leader who's chosen to step up and serve through politics. If you want to learn more about New Politics and the candidates that we support, please check us out online at newpolitics.org. And also, here's another reminder that applications are currently open for two programs being run by the New Politics Leadership Academy. If you're a military vet or an alum of a civilian service program like AmeriCorps or Peace Corps, and you have a voice in your soul wondering if you feel called to serve again through politics, answering the call is the program for you. And if you know that you don't want to be a candidate but want to serve through politics as a campaign staffer, I invite you to check out Staffing School. You can learn more about both programs at www.newpoliticsacademy.org. And remember that the applications for both programs, the deadline is March 22nd. I'll leave you with this question. How do you feel called to serve at this critical moment for our nation? Thanks for joining. See you next time.